It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 6th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Meath County Councillors met with the HSE yesterday to discuss its plans to close the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Navan is an acute general hospital with 62 medical beds. It doesn't provide paediatric or obstetric care. It doesn't provide an acute surgical service. Ambulances bypass the emergency department for several conditions that can't be catered for at the hospital. As part of the reconfiguration the HSE is looking to implement, it is proposing investment, more patient care. Um, in That's the Minister for Health. Stephen Donnelly wants to close the emergency department as soon as he believes it is safe to do so. The Minister says this should be done because all of the doctors and nurses in Navin say it is not safe to keep it open. Why then is the Minister gagging hospital staff in Navin? Let's speak to Nick Kellyan, Independent Councillor and Cahirlock of Meath County Council. Uh, very good morning to you, Nick Killian. You met with the HSE yesterday. We'd like to hear about that meeting, but you weren't allowed to speak with hospital staff. What was the instruction from the Minister, as you understand it? Uh, good morning, Michael, um, and thanks for having me on this morning in relation to this important topic. Um, the situation uh, yesterday was that 11 councillors representing the entirety of the councillors on Mead County Council had the opportunity to sit down and talk to and listen to and meet with HSE management from the hospital, which was led by their uh, hospital manager and uh, Jerry McEntee, who was the clinical director. And during the course of the conversation, uh, and we obviously had questions to ask uh, the, the team that was there, um, uh, Jerry McEntee said very clearly, we asked why had not local consultation taken place at any stage? And he very clearly said, and he was quite emphatic in how he said it, was that Minister Donnelly had instructed that the management team in the hospital were not to engage with local politicians. Pure and simple. And I don't know why Minister Donnelly would have done that, and I don't know why he would have said that to the hospital staff. Okay. Hospital did that, that, did that include Jerry McEntee, the clinical director? Well, that's what he indicated himself. That he wasn't allowed to meet with you? Yes. Up to yesterday, but something changed? Yeah. Well, we, from our motion, 
which was unanimously adopted at the June meeting, which opposes the any attempt by the government and the HSE to remove the A&E from Our Lady's Hospital in, in, in Navan. Um, that motion we wrote to Minister Donnelly seeking a meeting. And on Monday morning, I got a, uh, a note from... Um, our own staff to say that they were prepared to, that the management team of the hospital were prepared to meet with ourselves. Okay. So what changed from the time our letter went to the um, meeting yesterday and what instructions have been given by Minister Donnelly or his staff to the hospital team, to the HSE, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not personally aware of. Okay, so the Minister is probably too busy to meet with uh, the locally elected public representatives, uh, the members of Mead County Council. The Minister has said he's too busy to meet uh, or to discuss this with LMFM and the Minister has not been in County Mead, I'm sure, since any of this happened, let alone speak to any media in County Mead. Yet he, he uh, tells us from Dublin that all of the doctors and nurses in County Mead want the emergency department in Navan to close. Uh, is that the case? Is that your impression of things? Not really. No, I mean, certainly, and to be fair to Jerry McEntee, he very clearly outlined where he was coming from, from a medical perspective yesterday, and outlined the concerns he had in relation to the current situation in Navan Hospital. And I know that you'll uh, be speaking to him later. And But he, he was very clear in presenting his views and his staff's views as to where the hospital was at this point in time with regards to critical care. Mm. But from our perspective, there has been, I mean, I know that they met, um, I think it was three, four weeks ago with the TDs. uh, And that is my only knowledge of any public or other public representative engagement between the HSC and um, uh, public representatives. But certainly from our point of view, we were very pleased that they did meet with us yesterday. It was an open, as they say, an open and frank discussion. Uh, and there was a lot of toing and froing in relations to questions we were asking. And to be fair, the hospital man- manager, uh, uh, you know, left the door open for us to come back with any other queries we have. And there were some technical questions asked yesterday. And Anita Brennan, who's the hospital manager, did say that we could come back and talk to her again. And that, that was obviously very welcome. I mean, we from yesterday, um, as councillors, we still are opposed to the closure of the A&E unit okay. in Navan. What we want is an upgrading of Navan. Okay. Uh, just, 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 just before just before you talk to us about that, um, and just to be clear, Anita Brennan or Jerry McEntee or anybody else who attended that meeting on behalf of the hospital management, on behalf of the HSE, didn't uh, make it clear to you uh, the rationale uh, for the minister gagging them. No. I right. think uh, even... Um, Jerry McEntee himself sounded perplexed by the fact that they were gagged by the Minister in relation to talking to local public representatives. Okay, we've asked the Minister for a statement. We don't expect to hear from the Minister, obviously, because he is such a a busy man, Um, but we do hope that we'll get some sort of a a statement clarifying his position on that. Now, let's talk about the hospital, which is probably more important to people listening to us uh, this morning. I'm sure you heard very good arguments for closing the emergency department. Lives are at risk. Patient outcome uh, is at risk risk and could be poor or very poor as a result of being treated in the wrong hospital. Uh, How did that make you feel 
about yourself if ever you need uh, emergency department treatment or one of your family, friends, neighbours? Well, it was very concerning what Jerry McEntee was outlining to us yesterday. But what I'm getting from people that I know that have attended the hospital is nothing but uh, positive um, uh, actions that happened when they went to Navan Hospital. Now, I haven't spoken to any stroke victim or any heart attack victim. The the one person that was on our team yesterday, Councillor Francis Dean, he and he told about his situation when he had uh, a heart attack and did have a heart attack in Navan Hospital and the way he was treated and cared for and how he recuperated in the hospital. So the the arguments that uh, Jerry is putting, obviously, if one listens to them just in isolation, they are concerning. And you will, uh, and you will hear from Jerry McEntee and Colm Henry and others uh, that ninety percent of those patients will continue to be treated in Navin. It's those people that you haven't spoken to, those uh, who are at great risk uh, and have very complicated problems uh, for medics uh, to deal with that won't be seen there because they'll be seen somewhere where they'll get the treatment they deserve. But one of the um, indications yesterday from Jerry McEntee was it's an average of 12 patients per day. That's 4,380 patients per year that go out of Navan to uh, Our Lady of Lourdes or to Blanchardstown. So that's quite an amount of people at a time when Navan, when the hospitals in Blanchardstown and in Drogheda are full to capacity. I think the doctors in Drogheda would say it's an underestimation as well. Well, there's 17 consultants have signed a letter clearly indicating that they would not be happy with the closure in in. Navin and the additional patients being brought to Drogheda or to Blanchardstown. So, you know, even if it was to happen in the morning, nobody's ready for this. The one very clear message that I asked Anita Brennan myself at the very end of the meeting was, has any decision been made? And the answer was very clear. No decisions have been made in relation to the closure of the hospital as of yesterday. Well, so, the, so that that was very definite in the sense that it's not going to happen immediately if in the HSE's terms. Okay, that's because uh, the minister has intervened. Uh, it, it was uh, to close at the beginning of this week on the first of July, but the minister has said that he's not satisfied. Uh, he he's embarrassed. Uh, the expertise uh, of the HSE board. He usurped uh, the CEO. The CEO has resigned as a result uh, and obviously says that he can't countenance the idea that people would uh, die unnecessarily because of political interference. Well, I mean, it's very easy, I suppose, at times to accuse politicians. All we're doing from a, from a County Meath perspective, and remember, it is a County Meath perspective we're coming from, is that the people are telling us they want to keep the Model 3 hospital, which it is mm. technically a Model 3 hospital, and they want to upgrade it and they want the services and the staffing that's necessary, consultants, doctors and additional nursing staff to be put into the hospital, upgraded. Upgraded, now, yes, now, that, that's now, one now, thing because nobody wants to be told that somebody belonging to them passed away and wouldn't have died had they been brought to a different hospital. Well, from the point 
point of view of somebody even going to Navan, Navan Hospital is not going to let anybody die unnecessarily. That's for certain from the commitment of the, and dedication of the staff down there. And they would have to be moved, obviously, in certain situations, even currently, because... Um, what, what I don't know. I've had three senior clinicians say that the risk is uh, of very poor, poor or, or, or very poor outcomes up to and including the possibility of an unnecessary death. Well, we have not been told about any unnecessary deaths that have happened in Navan Hospital. That's one thing. No, but that's the risk. We we, there have been adverse yeah. incidents, they say, but that, that, that is a possibility. But, the, but again, we come back to what they're proposing, which is this uh, uh, overall 24-hour assessment unit. Th- that's, why, that's why the whole situation is unacceptable, I'm sure, to most people, because nobody wants to go to a hospital that is, is unsafe or one of their loved ones to go to a hospital that is unsafe, that they could die in, uh, 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 in a situation that wouldn't have resulted in a death had they been brought to a different hospital. But no, nobody wants the solution to be an equally unsafe situation. But at the end of the day, the HSC are making decisions which they didn't even consult locally about. And the hospital, look, let's face it, uh, Michael, the HSC have, since the HSC was formed, have downgraded uh, Navan Hospital. Money has not been put into it. Now, there has been money. Again, you see the communications between the hospital and the local community if they're being gagged. Like we were told yesterday that the staffing in the hospital has increased uh, over the last number of years um, from 495 staff in 2016 Mm. to 613 at present and that there are other improvements being made to the hospital. Mm. What we want is a continuation of that to the A&E unit. Okay, well, the the commitment is the continuation of that but not to the emergency department because the emergency department will close down. There will be additional resources put into the hospital in a number of different areas including the work that will be carried out in the medical assessment unit that will replace the ED. Well, if, if, it, if what they're talking about was to happen in the morning, the situation in Drogheda in particular additional two ICU uh, beds and plus ten other hospital beds and the staffing to go with them they're not even in place at this point in time. The staff has not even been, is not even in place. So we cannot go from where we are right now even to the, a new situation in Drogheda because of capacity. And the other okay. thing that... Uh, as, I understand it, as, as I understand it, the two ICU beds have made, been made available and in excess of 40 beds. Well, that's not the information we have. Okay, We're being told that they're not available. I, 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 maybe I'm mistaken in that. Um, but, but the other, uh, Michael, the other situation that's been ignored from a HSE perspective. Now, remember, we had the management team from the hospital who are committed to, you know, the excellence of 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 medical care in Navan Hospital. What we didn't have yesterday, we had one person from the HSE management team. Why have they ignored the census figures? We have now, as you know, a 12.5% increase in population in our county. Mm. On top of that, we have um, 
continuing building of houses yeah. which are going to generate thousands more people coming into the county. Well, so go back, go, go back, to go back to the H, uh, Nick, go back to the HSE commissioned report on why Navin was the ideal location for a regional hospital. In 2008, it all had to do with population and catchment area, the population of the catchment area, uh, and that it would serve more people uh, than any other location uh, better uh, in this region uh, and, and it's sort of the same argument in reverse now I suppose uh, that is being made Well just to recall at that time um, I was on with Dermot O'Hearn on your show mm-hmm. at that time Michael and he said not a dime would be spent on a regional hospital in Navan so there's been conflicting views in relation to Navan going back for the last uh, 20 years and various governments have just totally ignored Navin. That's, you know, and that's the, the that's why we're in the situation we're in today because money has not been invested in Navin over 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 the time. Okay. I appreciate where Jerry McEntee and his staff and they're dedicated, they're committed, mm-hmm. they want to provide the best service possible. And yes, what he told us yesterday in relation to the concerns he has in relation okay. to and no uh, doubt he'll repeat that care. again. Yeah, and no doubt he'll repeat it again concerning. in a moment. Yeah, because we're going to speak to him now in just a. a a couple of minutes' time. We'll leave it there for the moment with yourself, Thanks Nico. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Nick Killian, an independent councillor who headed up that delegation of 11 Meath County councillors to meet with the HSE in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan yesterday, is the chair of Meath County Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Uh, Dr. Jerry McEntee, clinical director at Our Ladies Hospital in Navan, consultant surgeon at uh, the matter. Good morning to you once uh, again, and thank you once uh, again for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I'm sure you want to respond uh, to what uh, the chair of the County Council, Nick Killian, was saying to us a few moments ago. Is it true that you were instructed by the minister not to consult with local representatives? We were instructed by the minister that we were not to engage with the local community until we had a meeting with the local politicians last Monday. Now, that meeting was cancelled four times over the last seven months. And during that time, we were told we were not to engage with the local community by the Minister for Health. Did the minister say why? no, I didn't. We None of us could understand it. But we were instructed clearly that we were not to engage with the local community until we had a meeting with the local politicians. Is the minister usurping the authority of the HSE? No, I, I, I don't. I don't know whether he is or he isn't. I don't get involved in that in that aspect of it, and I don't look at that aspect of it. But we we were clearly instructed not to engage with the local community, which is a pity because during that period of time, Michael, mm. there was some misinformation spread about the plans for the hospital, and we were not in a position to present the the facts as we saw them. Yeah, I remember um, some politicians uh, who had spoken to you privately saying that when the time was right, you wanted to discuss what your plans were and the logic for your plans uh, because you had concerns. Uh, But the concerns that you have are are very real. uh, And uh, you've been uh, looking at this 
from a clinical perspective, the clinical decision that you've made, that Dr. Colin Henry has made, and that the CEO has approved, is to close the emergency department for patient safety reasons. Uh, the minister has stopped that. Is that not usurping your authority? Well, uh, if, if you want to use that term, that's, uh, all, all I am saying is, by delaying the process, we are continuing to put the critically ill patients who attend Our Lady's Hospital in Avon at risk. Okay. Um, what about the alternative that you've proposed? Uh, because the 17 doctors uh, who've written to the Minister have given very good reasons, it would seem, for not proceeding. Yes, I, I agree. And, and if I were one of the clinicians, I, I can understand perfectly why they have voiced their concerns. Any group of clinicians who've been asked to take on extra workload, and particularly in terms of acutely ill patients, their first concern is, can we cope with this? Now, they did say in that letter, uh, they recognised, and they came out and said in the middle of that letter, that they agree that the ED in Nabon, as it's currently structured, is unsafe. Mm. But they had concerns that they would be uh, put under undue pressure. And that is a real concern. I think they went further and said that there would be risk to patients doing this. uh, And to my lay mind, that reads as two wrongs don't make a a right. it, it isn't a question of merely transferring the risks from Our Lady's Hospital now to Drogheda because the key difference between the two institutions is one institution has the critically, critically services necessary to give the critically ill the best chance of survival, and that is Drogheda, whereas Navin do not have mm. those critical care services. You can understand, though, that they were very out of sorts because there was no consultation with them until the 9th of June. Uh, at that stage, I think it was a phase of complete. Uh, it was a similar situation with stroke patients uh, being diverted from Navin to Drogheda in 2020. There was no consultation. They only learned about the plan to do it from the media. And they said that there's as many uh, stroke patients going to Drogheda now, if not more, than St. James's Hospital, the biggest hospital in the country, and that there was no human or financial financial resource uh, given to the hospital to cope with that significant increase in demand? There have been resources put into Drogheda with a view to the reconfiguration of Navan. They got 40 extra beds, three extra theatres and an extended ED on the basis of reconfiguration of Navan. And the chairman of the RCSI hospitals in the communications and, and the communication uh, took place between the management of Ireland East and the management of the RCSI hospitals, which includes Drada. Mm. And and I don't know if that management in turn communicated with the local clinicians. Okay. That management said they needed two additional ICU beds and ten additional beds, and the HSE had agreed. But now the clinicians... Uh, not unreasonably, mm. we need manpower resources to deal yeah. with this, as uh, well as 
wasteful resource. And, yet, and that, that seems totally reasonable. And, and they map out the manpower that they say they require in their letter. Uh, um, do, do you know uh, if uh, the 17 doctors uh, who signed that letter have been gagged by the minister as well or by the HSE? Don't know. Okay. All right. Uh, They do say, uh, because this goes back to, I don't know, 2002, 2006, 2008, certainly to 2013 and the smaller Network Hospitals report. Uh, And in their letter, they refer to an analysis uh, by the National Ambulance Service, which was carried out in 2019. And it identified that 83% of patients who attend NAVN would end up in the Lourdes following the reconfiguration of the hospital. And that's one of their concerns. Concerns, that the number of patients coming to Drogheda would be far greater than you and your colleagues are estimating. Well, now, in, in fairness, I, I don't know where they came up with the figure of 45 per extra patients per day, because if, if there were, in 2019, there were 18,655 new attendances at the ED in Navan, and straight away, 40% of those if Navin reconfigured, would still be able to go to the local injuries unit without a GP's letter. That is approximately 8,000 people. Uh, and of the acute, all the surgical patients, all the surgical patients would go to Drogheda. And that okay. is approximately 3,000. And they address that in their letter, as uh, I'm sure you're as well, because they say the numbers that would present to Drogheda will be higher, most likely, because face-to-face availability of general practitioners out of hours will decline in August. Yeah. Now, uh, the figures uh, based on our data from 2019 suggest that the patients who would need to go to the medical assessment unit as opposed to the local injuries unit would require a GP's letter. But those figures amounted to about 13 patients in 24 hours, mm. 10 of them, 10 of them during the working day. So 10 patients among all the GPs of the Navin catchment area uh, would require an additional GP letter. And in the out of hours between 8pm and 8am, you're talking about three patients requiring a letter from the emergency services, Northeast Dock. And the Mead faculty of GPs came out and said, this is this can be achieved uh, and should be done in the interest of the safety of the critically ill patients. Okay, well, uh, I I mean, we accept and respect your uh, opinion on this, but experts differ, and in this case, expert medical opinion differs because the expert medical opinion of the 17 doctors in Drogheda is clear that it will not provide the right care for patients if they're brought to Drogheda. They say the transfer of the risk from an unsafe ED in Navin to an under-resourced ED in Drogheda will lead to poorer clinical outcomes for patients. So, the, the, uh, as I said earlier, it's not a question of merely transferring the risks from one hospital to the other because Drogheda does have the facilities. And I would point out that Drogheda, uh, if you look at the trolley counts, which is an indication of the pressure that EDs are under, mm. Drogheda was never in the red once for the last six months, yep. the day after Minister Donnelly met with the four clinicians in Drogheda. Yep. Oh, uh, uh, and 
you know, we've been reporting on hospital trolley figures for years uh, since the INMO started it, back when they went the INO, uh, I don't know how long ago that is, 20 years ago or whatever. And Drogheda, I think, was the worst, if not one of the worst hospitals in the country. Uh, and now there's no doubt it is, is one of the best performing hospitals in the country. Uh, and I, I guess... Uh, given that that is the situation, uh, it's understandable why the doctors would feel that this is a backward step. Well, I, as I said earlier, yes, I can understand perfectly why clinicians who are asked to take on extra workload, particularly in relation to critically ill patients, their first concern is, can we cope with this? And they say uh, they need additional staff. Up to now, it was additional structural resources and they say they need additional staff and the HSE, I saw a statement that came out from the board of the HSE uh, last week where it said they are addressing the issues of the extra staff required by Drogheda. Do you know what communication or, or level of communication or how regular the communication is between the HSE board or on behalf of the board with the minister, because the minister was very scathing of the HSE's decision to do this, saying that it was clearly unsafe in his view. Yeah, I, I didn't hear the beginning of that question, Michael. I'm sorry. Uh, do, you, do you know how much communication there has been of late between the HSE and the minister? Well, in the recent past, I, I gather there's been a lot of communication. But as I said to you, the HSE was trying to communicate with the minister the last eight months. And as I said to you, there were four meetings scheduled and they were all cancelled at very short notice. Uh, and that delayed the communication between the HSE and the minister for health. Okay. Do you believe uh, the decision to keep it the emergency department um is for political reasons? Uh, I think uh, the delaying this essential decision is is compromising the health and safety of the critically ill patients uh, that attend Our Lady's Hospital in Abbott. For whatever reason, uh, I think it is compromising their health and safety. Ignoring the medical expertise. Ignoring the medical and the nursing expertise. The staff who are working with the critically ill in Navan, uh, the nursing staff, the physicians, the surgeons and the anaesthetists have all come out and said it's unsafe. And it's worth pointing out mm. the anaesthetists in particular because the anaesthetists work in both Drogheda and Navan and cover the intensive care unit in Drogheda and Navan. And so they know the implications of uh, reconfiguring the ED in Navan, and they know the implications for Drogheda Hospital. Okay. And yet they have come out and said this change needs to happen in the interest of these critically ill patients. OK, you've stopped short of saying uh, that it's the wrong decision that's uh, being made for political reasons, uh, and you'll forgive me for uh, interpreting it to mean that. Uh, but if that is uh, the case, uh, well, then that's because of public pressure. A lot of people are expected to protest on Saturday and march in protest against the closure of the emergency department. Perhaps, in conclusion, you'd like to speak to those people who have very real concerns. 
I would, ex- if, I, if I had the opportunity, I would explain why this has been done and I would say to them, if it were one of your family members who are critically ill, give them the best opportunity of survival uh, and bring them to an institution that has the critical care services to do that. Dr. Jerry McEntee, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme again. Much appreciated. Jerry McEntee is the clinical director at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan and the consultant surgeon at the Matter Hospital. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Valuing Community campaign got underway yesterday with a, a one-day strike by the Irish Wheelchair Association for Pay Justice for Workers in the Community Sector and Section 39 organisations. Let's speak uh, to Adrian Kane, who's Public Administration and Community Division Organiser with SIP2. Good morning to you, Adrian, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. So there's seven more strikes today, uh, one of them in Talbot House Community Initiative in Navan and another in uh, the Community Employment Project NRD. Perhaps you'd explain to our listeners what's at the root of all of this. Okay, thanks very much, Michael, uh, for having me on your show. Um, What's behind the dispute uh, is that the majority of people who have been on strike yesterday and today haven't had a pay increase in 14 years. They're on the same rate of pay that they were on in 2008. And what's more fundamentally difficult for us is that we literally have no way to secure a pay increase for them because we're caught in this limbo-type situation where last October, November, we served literally hundreds of claims across the community sector looking for a pay increase in line with what was the the public service uh, agreement at the time. Um, Most employers want to increase their rate of pay because a lot of employers are finding it difficult to retain staff because their rates of pay are completely uncompetitive with both the private sector and the public sector. However, um, the funder of of these schemes, and you mentioned we, we had a dispute across the Irish Wheelchair Association or indeed in um, uh, community employment schemes in the main today in, in various different um, counties, um, is that the government will say that they're not the employer, despite the fact that they're the, the they're the funder and the, the primary funder in all these cases. Who is the employer? Because public servants are employed by the government, but who is the employer for these Section 39 organisations? Well, if I was to look at the Irish Wheelchair Association um, is a private uh, employer. Um, a lot of the the other companies in the community could be partnerships, leadership companies, charities. Um, so they're, they're in categorising them. They're 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 various different categories that they they fall under. And they, they they're funded through government money and fundraising, uh, charitable fundraising, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, right. yeah, but the, the, the majority of the funding would come from the government and then various top-ups um, that would happen themselves. Right? But the, the, the difficulty that we have is that uh, our, like, we, we were able to secure pay increases for these people when you had um, social partnership agreements in place. So between 1986 and 2008, the pay norms would have been the same for the public and private sector and they were typically applied across this sector as well. But what's happened since 2008 is that whereas you continue to have centralised uh, bargaining for public 
servants. Uh, in the private sector, it, it tends to happen at the level of individual in, employments and organisations. But w- we've been left out in the cold because we have we, we have a government that won't fund these organisations, that they that they can give us the money um, to to pay their own staff in line with with whatever um, you know, whether it was average pay increases across the economy, the public sector pay increases, or whatever. We just can't get a pay increase. Right. Uh, and it's not for want of, of trying. I, I take it uh, you've uh, been lodging pay claims over the last 14 years. Uh, well, w- what we did was, because you had a, a pay, pay had stagnated for a long number of years, uh, and there was pay reductions in the, in the public service. But where this became hugely critical was when um, the, the current uh, public service pay deal called Building Momentum, which is only 3%, but you can see pay talks broke down now um, last week in relation to uh, an offer of 5%. Um, so that's likely to settle north of that. Um, and, and, you know, so it's it's hugely critical on that front. You also now have inflation for May was at 7.8%. And I hear some commentators talking about that it'll hit 10% by mm-hmm. the end of the year. I was talking to a woman, a, a member of ours in the picket line yesterday in Clontarf from the Irish Wheelchair Association. And she told me she saw a colleague down at a food bank getting uh, some meals for her for her children. Yeah, a full time so, employee, right? Yeah. Mm, um, okay. So we're like, uh, and again, just the Irish Wheelchair Association. Those people would be on most of our people would be on around fourteen euro an hour. Their equivalent in the HSE would be somewhere around seventeen euro an hour. Okay. So uh, and and government a major funding problem uh, and pay poverty, you know, people mm. that work and uh, um, in poverty. And we can see that all over our economy. Mm. Uh, and government funding cut I- I- in uh, the financial crisis and in- the crash uh, yeah. a- and hasn't been restored. And that's the reason for it, is it? Yeah, and that's yeah. a significant part of, of that entire sector. And I don't have the stats with mm. me, but mm. like the, the, that, that really is at the, the, the crux of this. Okay. Uh, well, in, in, in terms of the restoration of, of savage um, cutbacks that took place at that point in time. Okay. And again, in RD and in Navin and uh, in other uh, uh, community uh, sectors uh, today, across seven uh, sites, uh, people on the picket well, line. We have around 19, um, I think, 19 separate employment sites. It's, right. it's mm-hmm. primarily focused on Galway and Waterford, but we have a number of other sections. We will be meeting next week, and I've no doubt that yeah. we're going to have to escalate this. this well, that's what I was just going to say, Adrian. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that we're going to be hearing more about this in the coming days and more people yeah. on the picket Unless line we get engagement time, so. from, from government, we certainly will. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Much appreciated, as always. Adrian Kane is the Public Administration and Community Division Organiser with SIP2. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, Boris Johnson is in a spot of bother. The British Prime Minister has had uh, two of his ministers resign, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Health Secretary, Rishi Sunak and uh, Sajid Javid. Uh, Mr Sunak said that the public rightly expect the government to conduct itself in a proper fashion, to be competent and to, to take issues seriously. He wrote to Mr Johnson tendering his resignation and it comes after the Prime Minister apologised for appointing his new Deputy Chief Whip. This is Chris Pincher who admitted that uh, he 
the Prime Minister, that is, uh, apologised after admitting that he had been made aware about complaints about Mr Pincher's behaviour uh, and allegations that he had groped two men in a private member's club while he was drunk. Yes, I think it was a mistake and I apologise for, uh, for it. I think in, in, in hindsight it was uh, the wrong thing to do. Uh, I apologise to everybody who's been uh, badly affected by it. And I just want to make absolutely clear that there's no place in this government for uh, anybody who uh, is predatory or who uh, abuses their position of power. Did you want to joke, though, pincher by name, pincher by nature? Well, what I can tell you is that uh, if I look at the background of this and why I regret it so much, is that uh, about three years ago, uh, there was a complaint made against uh, Chris Pincher in the Foreign Office. Uh, the complaint was was uh, cleared up. He apologised. Uh, it was raised with me. Uh, in uh, orally, there was a. I was I was briefed on what had had happened. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if I had my time again, I would think back on it and uh, recognise that uh, he wasn't going to learn uh, any okay. lesson. He and he wasn't going to. To change. Of course, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I don't think Boris Johnson will have his time back again, but I do think he will think back on it, uh, given uh, the fallout uh, from all of this. Boris Johnson was speaking uh, to the BBC yesterday there. Now, this morning, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer's replacement, this is Rishi Sunak's replacement, um, Nadine Zaoui, spoke uh, to the Radio 4 Today programme. Last night, the Prime Minister... Um, went on television and apologised and explained that with the benefit of hindsight, he shouldn't have appointed uh, Chris Pincher to the role of deputy chief. Uh, We make decisions at warp speed. You know that, Nick. You've been around politics for a very long time. We don't get every decision right. Uh, I think to turn on one another now... But this isn't about the decision, is it? It's about telling the truth, Chancellor. Now, on Monday, when you were asked about this Conservative MP promoted by the Prime Minister, despite the fact we now know that he, Boris Johnson, knew about Chris Pincher's past inappropriate behaviour to staff and colleagues, you said, I think on the specific allegations, the Prime Minister did not know. That was not true, was it? So when I said the specific allegations, it was the incident uh, that took place at the Carlton Club, um, which Prime Minister didn't know. He heard about it. He was. It was then. Um, uh, he was then informed that there's been a formal complaint, which is when he took the decision to ah, remove the. So whip. you only meant um, certain specific no, allegations, no, not I was, other specific. No, allegations. I was. I was being asked about um, uh, you know, what what happened with the Chris Pincher, um, uh, you know, what happened on 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 the night of. Uh, uh, you know, the Carlton Club. Right, that's the new Chancellor Nadine Zaoui speaking uh, to Nick Robinson on the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 this morning. Last night, the Deputy Chief Whip, Whip Andrew Mitchell spoke to the Newsnight programme about Boris Johnson's position now. It's a bit like the death of Rasputin. He's been poisoned, stabbed, he's been <laughs> shot, his body's been dumped Prime in minister. the freezing river and still he lives. But uh, uh, this, is a, this is an abnormal Prime Minister, a brilliantly charismatic, very funny, very amusing 
big, big character, but I'm afraid he has neither the character nor the temperament to be our Prime Minister. Maybe the biggest character since Margaret Thatcher. Michael Heseltine was one of the people who brought Thatcher down and he's been talking about the current situation that Boris Johnson is in in comparison to that time. I think that they are the Geoffrey Howe of the end of Mrs Thatcher. It was Geoffrey's resignation that precipitated the challenge and it was the cabinet that advised Mrs Thatcher that she couldn't win a second round. So I think we've got to that stage. I don't think there's any recovery for Boris Johnson. Michael Heseltine speaking to the BBC. What make you think Boris Johnson is a goner? But Jacob Rees-Mogg speaking to Channel 4 might make you think otherwise. I wouldn't get too excited about resignations. If you think of what happened to Macmillan when he lost his whole Treasury team and he referred to a little local difficulties and went on as Prime Minister for years, when Salisbury lost Randolph Churchill and Salisbury ended up being Prime Minister for more than a decade. So losing ministers is something that happens and I thought the Chancellor made a very fair point in his letter when he said that his differences uh, with the Prime Minister were simply too big and I think we were seeing that in the tax rises that we were getting that were very much led by the Treasury and that actually you need a Prime Minister and a Chancellor who have the same vision for the country. Right, that's Jacob Rees-Mogg loyal to the end or is it the end? We may know by the end of the day. Anyway, uh, he was speaking to Channel 4. Let's uh, hear from you now. Orla on the phone to us this morning wanting to know who Stephen Donnelly thinks he is instructing the HSE management not to engage with local politicians about the hospital. How dare he, she says. Well, Orla, we would ask the minister... Um, if he wasn't so busy. Uh, we did ask a spokesperson for the minister to give us a statement. Um, they haven't responded at all. Uh, so the uh, answer to your question, as far as we're concerned, is we don't know who he thinks he is, telling the HSE not to speak to the local community. Gagging order from the minister. Uh, but Orla says uh, the people have a right to know what is going to happen to their health services, and the only way that they have of knowing this is by being updated by their local reps. It's not like ordinary Joe Soap can have access to the minister or the HSE management, and they depend on their councillors for information. It's unforgivable of the minister to try and keep them out of the loop like this. Well, I think maybe if you're asking about Lachlanstown Hospital, you might get uh, more uh, chance of uh, an answer, uh, because when they were talking about Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, Stephen Donnelly spent a long time talking about his local hospital uh, and how they saved lives by closing it down. Uh, Pat uh, says, another day, another mess by Minister Donnelly. The man seems to make one mistake after the other since he started the job. He's a liability and we need a minister who knows how to handle the problems in our health service in a calm and efficient manner. Well, I imagine the minister kept it all calm by making sure that nobody was talking about closing the emergency department uh, by instructing the staff and management in the hospital not to consult with the local community. A dramatic statement I think from Jerry McEntee on the programme this morning but that's the reality of the situation. Somebody else uh, texting us saying Michael the staff in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan listen to your show to learn what is happening in the hospital we work in. Absolutely no consultation or discussion with staff. It's so dis- disrespectful and demoralising to hear Ma- Mr McEntee criticise the work done in ICU and ED by dedicated staff says our caller I'm not sure I heard it that way excuse me I think he was uh, talking up the hospital in a lot of ways but was hoping that uh, there would be uh, the better potential for patient outcomes uh, by having them go elsewhere excuse me 
just need to, to, to clear my throat. <clears throat> and somebody else asking um, if I would ask Jerry McEntee, uh, would he be available at uh, the weekend uh, to give a referral letter to a patient if they needed to go to the medical assessment unit? Margaret says, I had an appointment in the matter for bloods a few years ago. I was told I had to go to the emergency department. That was on Friday at two o'clock in the afternoon. I had to wait 16 and a half hours. When I was called at half six in the morning, that's on the Saturday morning, I said to the doctor, I didn't think I'd have to wait so long. Uh, The reply uh, was uh, that, to be honest, Margaret, we didn't think you'd wait. What do you reply to that? I don't know, Margaret. I I find it hard to believe the doctor said that. God. Uh, Somebody else uh, says, what can Navin Hospital, or why can it not be upgraded? There's money for everything else. Why not for something as important as people's health? Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Mr. Michael McGrath, Minister Heather Humphreys and I announced a package worth 67 million euro to support parents and students in their return to school. Now, that's Norma Foley speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday about uh, the government's plan to help parents with back-to-school costs. The Minister for Education outlined the ways this €67 million will be spent. The elimination of all fees on the school transport scheme, a €100 increase in the back-to-school allowance and the expansion of the school meals programme to almost 60,000 more students. Now, as you heard, the back-to-school allowance is to be increased this year. This payment will be increased by €100 Euro for this coming ap- academic year. So there will be two new rates for parents. The amount being paid for each qualified child aged between 4 and 11 years of age will be €260. Euro, and the rate payable for each eligible child aged 12 and over will be €385. Euro. And then there's the cost of the bus. But this year... Parents will not have to pay a fee in order to access this vital service, with all fees being waived for those in receipt of a ticket. This will result in immediate savings of up to €500 Euro for a family and will benefit over 120,000 children. Where a parent has already made a payment in respect of their child's ticket, this will be fully refunded. The Minister was speaking during a Sinn Féin motion uh, which was calling on government to help parents with back-to-school costs. Let's uh, speak to Dunka O'Leary who is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education and skills and uh, brought this motion to the Dáil yesterday. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed as always for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, has the government satisfied you in respect of the announcement it made yesterday? Well, the first thing I'd say in relation to that is that um, up until yesterday, or at least Monday, the government's position was that there would be no change until uh, the budget in September. It was first that it was October, and then they brought forward to September. Sinn Féin had been making the case for some time that we needed relief for families in the here and now, and particularly when it came to back to school, uh, because these are costs that are happening in the here and now. The book lists are coming through people's doors, the uniform list, the letters for voluntary contributions, and these are big expenses. They do put an awful a lot of pressure on parents. If you have two or three children, and if they're, some of them are secondary school, you could be easily paying over a thousand euros. So it can be a big, big cost. So um, we published our proposals on Thursday and announced a motion on Friday, and we've been talking about it for some weeks in general terms. Um, and in my view, um, the government would have finished the dial term, would have gone into the recess without making an announcement, only for a pressure from ourselves and other parts of the opposition. In terms of what was announced... So, so you think you forced it? Uh, and in terms of what was announced, yeah, it's, pretty fantastic. it's pretty fantastic, isn't it? 
Well, like I, I, I welcome the fact that they've taken on some of our proposals, in particular in relation to increasing the back to education allowance for for those who are uh, already in receipt of it. I think that's very welcome. Uh, it is something that we had proposed. Similarly, in terms of the school meals and the extension of that, that's something that we've been looking for for, for a number of years now, actually, at this stage. Um, and I would welcome that as well. What I think is a mistake and what I think is wrong is the fact that they didn't take on our proposals in terms of middle-income earners. And even when I talk of middle-income earners, some, some people would be on wages that would not be particularly high. What we had proposed is that um, that people who that we wanted to add another 500,000 children be eligible for it, targeting those who would be on a combined household income of 80,000 euro or less. If you look at what has happened yesterday, it still means that somebody who has a household even, that is a combined household income of 620 euro, if you've one child in school, you don't You've more than if you've more sorry if you've more than six hundred and twenty euro you mm. don't qualify you don't qualify and that's not a huge income Michael as as you know that adds up to about thirty two thousand euro a year and that's a combined income so um, that's well below the average industrial wage particularly when you consider that it could be two incomes so uh, an awful lot but of people you, you you would give what three hundred and eighty five euro in a back to school allowance uh, to couples with a, a joint income of up to eighty thousand euro uh, as well as a 500 euro bus ticket not quite Michael no what we were proposing to do was to increase the rate for people on the lowest incomes but we were proposing to expand it at the previous rates of 160 euro and 285 for those people who don't currently qualify so for those people between um, roughly 32,000 and 80,000 euro they would be getting 160 euro for a child at primary age and 285 uh, for a child at secondary age and I think that that's right bear in mind that that's a combined household income Mm. Michael Um, It's still pretty generous though isn't it? I'm not sure that it is now. If you take into account a combined household income, and as I say, like I mean, that takes into account people who are on a combined household income of maybe thirty-two thousand euro. Like I mean, mm. that's not that's not a lot of money. These are people who are right now getting these bills and are wondering what bill they might have to miss, whether they're going to go to the credit union, whether they're going to go to the money lender. Okay, but I'm sure there's plenty of single mothers who are unemployed who would feel it's very generous, or or who are earning twenty or twenty-five or thirty thousand who would feel that it's very generous. And look, maybe it will be of significant assistance to people like that. Some of those are people who would have already qualified and they've seen an increase in their rate. And look, we have thought that the people who needed the assistance the most get the most assistance. But I think it is wrong. I think it is a mistake that people, you know, there are people out there who would have been listening to the news and looking at that and saying, oh, well, look, that's great now and that'll be a big help to us. Mm. And then find out that they don't qualify. And they could be people in very, very ordinary jobs and very ordinary incomes who are really struggling, who are wondering if they can afford to get away this summer, if, they can, if they're going to have to go to the credit union, if they're going to uh, go to the money lender. Like these are bills of, uh, very often you see the Irish League of Credit Unions have a survey out today. Yeah. Uh, these are bills that could be well in excess of €1,000. They could they be touching €2,000. They wouldn't have expected to have qualified though, would they? I, I mean, they wouldn't have qualified last year and wouldn't have expected to qualify this year. This is welcome news for people who qualified last year and they're getting a lot more this year to offset the increased costs. 
listen, and I don't have a problem with that. My point is, Michael, there'll be people listening to the show that would have looked at the news yesterday and said, oh, they're expanding that scheme. Well, maybe that means good news for us. Uh, and yeah. that isn't the case. Okay, maybe that's that the, case. the case. I'd, I'd be surprised if that was the well, case. Well, look, I mean, I would, I would say, it, you know, to people who are listening in there who are on incomes above €32,000, which, mm. again, and that's a combined household income. That's potentially two parents who could be working low-income jobs and they are out there mm. and they are really struggling and they're after getting a book list that might be 200 euro they're mm. after getting a letter for voluntary contributions and they might have two kids or three kids in school and that might be two or three hundred euro each and they're getting a uniform list that amounts up to 150 euro okay. and they're so, not going to get any help so, at all and now, so if look, you had si- if you had 67 million how would you have spent it would you have brought well, out our, our would you have brought that 100 euro down to 50 uh, and spread it out to more people or, or would you have asked for some contribution for the school bus or something like that? Well, we, uh, we have brought forward a proposal of £161 million, uh, and that was all-inclusive of all the measures that we have outlined in terms of back to education allowance, but also cutting the cost in, in terms of school books and uniforms, and that's something that we want to, and indeed voluntary contributions, that's something that we were looking to give relief to people in the here and now, but also on a longer-term basis, so to try and cut those costs, not just this year, but then continue to build on that over the next few years. So, look, I'm not saying that the government shouldn't implement what they've brought forward. We called for it. We welcome the fact that they have a little bit listened to what we've been saying and Mm. that they have accepted the argument that we have made that there is a need for action now because people can't wait. And I'm Mm. not saying that that means that the door is shut. It isn't necessary to pass legislation to expand this scheme to those on incomes above €620 a week, above €32,000 in a year. That is not impossible. So what we're doing now, what we're going to be doing today is saying to the Minister, yes, what you've done is welcome. We're glad you've listened to us, but listen now to the people who don't qualify, who are far from wealthy, who are really struggling and who need a bit of help. Okay, but you keep talking about joint incomes of 32,000. Under your proposals, you'd be uh, making the allowance available to couples on joint incomes of up to 80,000, wouldn't you? We would, and I'm yeah, bare so, again. So who would, who would be paying for that? Would that be uh, couples who are on joint incomes of 32,000 who don't have children? Well, look, I mean, uh, what we, in terms of overall and how we pay for this, it's worth bearing in mind that there was a surplus last year or that we were mm. expecting a deficit of several billion last year and we're now in a position of 1.3 billion. Mm. The, um, I know, of, but do you understand the point that there's, there's, there's couples who don't have children on €32,000 who don't know how they're going to pay their electricity bill or whatever else it is or, or get to work because they can't fill the car with petrol. Uh, so is it fair to ask them to pay for other people's children? Well, look, I mean, you could say that about child benefit. You could say that about paying for our schools. You could say that about childcare. I mm. don't believe that parent, that people who are out there, people who are working who don't have children, resent the fact that taxpayers' money goes to supporting children's education. Well, if you're earning 32000 between you and you're looking at the couple next door who are earning 75000 between them and they're getting a back-to-school allowance, uh, you may think, well, I could do with a bit of that. And there's always these cut-off points and a question of fairness that comes around these issues. Yeah, but Michael, I suppose, you know, this is about offsetting costs and I'm not even sure it will go all the way to offsetting the costs. Like, that mm. couple 
um, will not have the school list, they won't have the uniform list, they won't have mm. the voluntary contributions. This is about assisting people. This isn't this isn't money for jam here, Michael. This is mm. about mm. helping people who are under pressure, who mm. are, you know, expecting that they might have to go to the money lender. One in five families got into debts of over 500 euro last year. And that's last year, before the cost of living crisis reached the fever pitch that it is at now. Mm. Um, so what's it going to be this year? What are St. Vincent de Paul going to be dealing with? What are uh, Bernardo's and the Irish League of Credit Union's going to be looking at over the course of the next few months mm. as parents really struggle? So um, what we're proposing is, yes, we don't want to uh, give money to people who are on the very highest incomes because obviously they're in the position that they can pay. But the vast bulk of families do find this period a source of pressure. We want to ensure that those in the lowest incomes um, get the most assistance. We've mm. got that. But what we want to, and we've got the government over the line, they've agreed to our proposal in relation to that. But what we want to do now, and what I'm hoping that we will be able to do if we put enough pressure on the government, is to ensure that people who are just above that threshold, and Michael, you'll have lots of calls about this, mm. I'm sure, on lots mm. of issues, mm. that there are many people who work hard, who pay their taxes, uh, and who don't get anything back from the system. And mm. Look, I don't have a problem with, you know, people should pay their taxes, but I think it's fair that people on middle incomes should get something out of the system as well, and that's yeah. what we are bringing forward. I and I can understand your arguments, but I, I think there is an argument on the other side, uh, because if you spend that money on one cohort, it means you have less for another cohort when you get around to trying to address them. And as the government has been saying, since the war, if you like, uh, since the beginning of this cost of living crisis, uh, you can't expect the government to do everything. Well, what I would say in relation to that is the government is currently, well, first of all, they said that there was no money for anything and now that they, they, they have found this money and they've acknowledged that there is a need to deal with something in the here and now. The second thing I'd say in relation to that is this is a government who are winding up for big tax cuts for the very highest earners um, in the next budget. Um, you know, they haven't committed to that absolutely, but all the speculation tends to suggest that they're going to bring forward tax cuts that's going to benefit those who earn the most, the most. So if they're going to find money for that, and that's going to cost several hundred million, um, then I think that they can find money to assist middle income earners who are struggling with back to education costs. We know that there is the money to do this. We know that the central bank, um, we know that the fiscal uh, Advisory Council, and we know that several other uh, significant state organisations have said that there is the scope to assist people who are in danger of uh, their living standards falling. So what we're about here, Michael, is helping ordinary people who are struggling with bills. I don't think that that's a lot to ask for. We welcome the fact that those on the lowest incomes have seen an uplift. That is something that we call for, but we want to build on that. Now, people on middle incomes who are really struggling at this point in time, who don't know how they're going to manage month to month. And these bills of several hundred euro could be over a thousand euro, could even be touching two thousand euro in, in Louth and in Meath and the whole area around it and across the state who will struggle to find that money. And what we're asking for is a bit of help for them. I think that they're entitled to it, given the pressures that they're under. It won't go all the way. What we need to do in the longer run is cut the cost of books, cut mm. the cost of uniforms. We have legislation in relation to that, and cut the cost of voluntary contributions. In fact, bring them to an end yeah. eventually. We can't do that overnight because schools are underfunded, but eventually do that. Um, we want to do all those things in the longer run. Mm. But in Mar- the Mar- Maria, now, Maria on the phone. So, sorry to cut across you, Duncan. Maria on the phone saying they should do away with the school crest. The minister said uh, in her contribution to the doll, yes, 
say that she'd ask schools uh, to uh, allow parents to shop a- around and to have iron-on crests only. Uh, should the minister be uh, uh, doing something more decisive than that and instructing schools to stop uh, these uh, school uniforms uh, that can only be bought at a certain price in certain places? Yes, and we brought forward legislation on that very issue yesterday as it happens, and our legislation would ensure that schools have an obligation to have an affordable uniform policy and mm-hmm. that that uniform policy would have to have regard to issues like that. What the Minister is talking about at the minute is a circular that's general, that's advisory, that doesn't really put any pressure on schools. I have to say there are schools who do their best now mm-hmm. uh, to keep costs down, but unfortunately then there are others who uh, who ask a lot of parents in terms of the various items of uniforms. I don't have a problem with uni- schools having uniforms, form if it's part of their identity and that's fair enough and different schools would have different choices um, in that regard but parents should be able to shop around these items should be affordable and there is scope to make the legislation stronger in relation to that and I would hope that the government supports our bill they voted to delay our bill to begin the process of winding up voluntary contributions they voted to delay that by nine months that was a shame but I hope we'll get to come back to that in November now Um, it was in earlier this year that we voted on that but when we bring forward this legislation I hope the government does listen this time again and look you you introduced that bill yeah Yesterday, uh, that'll be the autumn, though, before it, it, it'll be debated and voted on. I take it. Yeah, very likely it will. But like, I mean, it's all part of a suite of measures. It's not on oh, yeah. today or yesterday that we discovered this issue. We've brought forward two pieces of legislation. We've brought forward numerous policy documents, uh, mm-hmm. and we've been raising this for months. The okay. minister has begun to sit up and take notice. I welcome that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been forced to, um, but uh, but there's a bit further to go, and we're going to keep the pressure on because there's a lot of families out there who are still struggling who won't get assistance. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the program uh, this morning. Donka O'Leary is. Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, close to 40,000 refugees have come here from Ukraine since uh, the Russian invasion. 65 civil society organisations who are working with uh, the refugees have come together under the umbrella group name of the Ukraine Civil Society Forum or UCSF and we're joined now by Emma Lane Spollen who's the National Coordinator of the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Uh, A very good morning to you Emma and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I suppose many of us are familiar now with uh, somebody who's come to this country from Ukraine. A lot of families have taken a lot of people in but a a lot of people are, are living in hotels. I understand uh, from your briefing document that some people are being asked to move very quickly and very often, sometimes two or three times since they've uh, arrived in this country. Uh, and you met with members of the Oireachtas uh, this week uh, and put forward what you call a policy paper setting out four points four recommendations that you would like to see implemented, uh, not just to deal with refugees from Ukraine, I, I take it, but refugees coming into this country in general. Yes, hi, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, we did. Um, I suppose the, the Civil Society Forum kind of, um, we looked, when the refugee crisis happened here, we looked at what was uh, normally happened in refugee crisis situations, and it's usually overseas, and it's Concern and Troker who are dealing with them. And uh, we, they normally organise all the NGOs together to try and avoid uh, duplication and to in, you know, improve information sharing and all those kind of good things. 
And we said, well, we really should replicate that here. And, and we did. And we've now got 65 organisations. We're kind of organised around like education, employment, accommodation, trafficking, uh, child welfare, the kind of the key um, areas. And, um, and really have been using that to support each other to have more effective responses. But also we're able to spot where problems are happening because you'll hear us stuff in Cork or Kerry or Clare or Donegal and be able to uh, escalate that saying it's not a one-off situation it's actually happening in these four or five locations and, and speak to the government about that. Mm. Um, so that's kind of why we came together. And then we have met with the, the Taoiseach very, you know, had good meetings with him a couple of times. Uh, but we kind of feel we, we had to put set out our stall in public, uh, well, to the octaves anyway, uh, yesterday. And to really raise the issues of what needed to be done. OK, maybe you talk uh, us through that, uh, because yeah. uh, I, I suppose, uh, to put it simply, uh, to begin with, you're looking for leadership. Yeah. So again, and, and you know, leadership, you know, this is, there's lots of people who are doing great work in government and, and you know, to recognise yeah. that to accommodate, take in 40,000 people and accommodate by the state 30 odd thousand people is phenomenal. So we would hats off to the people in the Department of Children who have done that and, and in the Taoiseach's office. I mean, it is incredible what has been done and the community response has been incredible. No, it would However, restore your faith in humanity, wouldn't it? I, I mean, it totally. really has been incredible. I mean, it, you have to mm. hold on to that. When, all the, when, mm. all, when you hear the bad stuff, you have to remind yourself of all the really good stuff and mm. the really uh, incredible stuff that people are just doing. But and, much and of it ad hoc. Yeah, ad hoc, but you know, sometimes when it's a crisis, that's what you have to do. And then you have to kind of organise a little bit afterwards, mm. you know, and, and I suppose that's a little bit now. So a lot of the systems and structures are happening and we're all everyone been a bit frustrated, but it does take three months. It's not, not unfair for that to take a bit of time to run through. But we are asking for a national lead because we do feel that it needs to be one person's job, only job, you know, to kind of coordinate all of this rather than it being many senior officials part of their job mm. and they have other competing priorities which is fair enough given that there's a ton of competing priorities on the government's agenda at the moment and this is just one of them so the national lead is really important and it is because it is around a driving implementation which again i think is best done probably by agencies rather than departments uh you know where you can actually hire people in who have expertise in project management uh who aren't maybe as constrained by decision making across departments and things like that and the niceties of of government okay and then dealing with uh, accommodation uh another issue Uh, a lot of uh, the people who've come here from ukraine uh, have been welcomed into people's homes uh, but uh, as mentioned earlier a lot of them are living in hotels and you can't do that for any period of time no, it's 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 desperate, and we we know because we we I mean particularly if you remind yourself that the core of this more than forty percent are children, and another like forty percent are women, and so a lot of it is it's it's mums who are now single mums for the first time in their lives with small children predominantly, and they you just even just imagine that right, and you go wow okay, and dad's on the front line, and we don't know when he's going to see him again, and you just yeah anyway it makes me well up in tears to be honest, but then. You arrive, you're put into City West for a few days, maybe, um, if you're lucky, and then you, uh, you get moved on. And you might get, when you arrived over a month or so ago, you would probably even put into maybe a hotel in Clare or Kerry. And that was great. And you took, put the children into school. And then, of course, should the tourist season came on. So a lot of the uh, 40% of the hotel contracts obviously went to tourism. And uh, those people then had to be moved again. So they got moved into student accommodation. You know, 20% went to Galway, Cork, Limerick, Maynooth, you know, across the country. But should that accommodation last for, you know, maybe four to six weeks, if you're lucky? So we're looking at the 
third and fourth week in August of an accommodation crisis because uh, student accommodation will need to go back to students. The hotel accommodation is still going to be there for uh, tourists, usually well up into half term. Uh, usually, yeah. people are and a lot of the contracts that the uh, the government has with hotels are, are to run out in July, aren't they? This month? So they, no, they run, run in June. Yeah, June. Okay. I think most of them actually ran out. Right. Um, now they may have got a few extensions. You know, if they were able to, um, yeah. you know, and people have been able to manage their their bookings. But um, you know. Tourism has to happen as well, so it's not mm. to take one from the other. But from a, if you just take the perspective of the uh, refugee mum and child, they've just got into a great place in in Kerry, and they're getting to know the community, and they've been in the school, and now they're finding themselves in Limerick, which might be fantastic. Now they have a bit mm. of urban life. They're going, where am I going to be in September? Yeah. Uh, you know, and 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 I can imagine many principals across the country are shaking their head, going, "Oh my God, what are we going to be facing in September? Will we know if Johnny's coming back or is he not?" You know, yeah. and terrible as that is, uh, the very same people that you're talking about could be the envy of uh, people who have been seeking refuge here from countries like Afghanistan or Yemen or, or, or Syria who end up in Mosni. Yeah. Uh, although Mosley is much better than it has been. Uh, you know, there's big improvements, <laughs> yeah. to be honest. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it, uh, and the inequality uh, of treatment, and I, I, some of it, you just kind of go, uh, we, we've responded really well to the Ukrainian uh, refugees arriving. I think they're getting PPS numbers quickly and things like that make a big difference. Because once you have that, you know, you can start working, you can start looking, and you can feel you're part of the system. Um, those type of things happening quickly we could do that for everybody coming yeah. in in Cheshire. It doesn't need to be different. So I think what has shown up, it, it, this crisis, because it has such a volume, has really shown up the uh, what's wrong with the Direct Provision Centre, if you mm. didn't know it already. And uh, that's why we were calling for like the, the role well, of the Housing Agency and the Refugee Agency to say, listen, these yeah. are the recommendations of the White Paper to end Direct Provision. Because what you're hearing is the government saying, listen, we're in a crisis. We're going to have to defer that direct provision thing. We won't be able to do it. With, you know, and, and you're looking at almost an enlargement of it. You're saying, no, stop. Um, well, put the medium term plan in place yeah well kind of you'll have to forgive me I kind of feel like saying good luck about that uh, because we we, <laughs> we, 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 chose, we chose to our, our shame not to look after people seeking asylum in this country and we chose to set up this system of uh, direct provision for six months and 20 years later we were still putting people I- into uh, what uh, seemed to a lot of us uh, to be something similar to the industrial schools and the shame that goes with our history and history is repeating itself. But because we're now in this new crisis where we've had 10,000 people in direct provision and 40,000 people coming into the country on top of that, uh, there seems little prospect of, of helping people who are in that system now. I, I, well, I think we have to... It's just not. Um, it's just not acceptable. Like we have a mm. white paper which says you need to do these things. We have to start thinking about the medium term. So, as you say, direct provision was put in place six month temporary situation, and we were people were going to be moved through the system faster because we'd make decisions faster, right? They're sitting and languishing there because we don't have the administrative systems to actually do the that process with enough speed and the resources behind it. So we just need to do that, right? Mm. We can't stay in this emergency mode all the time because you just. People are living in limbo and the impact on mental health is awful. And it's really, really wrong that children are growing up in those situations. And so, again, when you look at the, uh, we know the experience of children growing up in direct provision. We know the experience of children growing up in homeless accommodation. Mm. It's not acceptable. And we, we, we seem to be doing, we fall into doing the same thing, like hotel type accommodation, um, 
knowing that it has bad outcomes, but because of procurement and decision-making on capital expenditure and things like that, we keep doing the same thing and mm. we know that the outcomes aren't going to be good. So I think we just have to say, stop. Okay, maybe we could put, finish put on the your... Agency in pla- well, put the agency in place to make the solutions sure. there for the yeah, medium term. Okay. That would be the end. I suppose, you know, we need to resource and put the structures in place. Okay, uh, <laughs> it sounds easy when you say it quickly. Uh, but maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe we could finish with the, your fourth recommendation, uh, which is to do with welfare and integration. And I think there's been a positive experience uh, with refugees coming here from Ukraine in that they were issued with PPS numbers uh, and so on. That gave them the opportunity uh, to li- live in this country like anyone else, if you like. Yeah, and and that that is huge for people. You know, people, they're arriving. They don't. The Ukrainians don't want to be on welfare. Like they, they 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 want to be working. And a good number of people who had enough English have actually got jobs. And we are in a very high employment situation, so there are plenty of people looking uh, to hire, particularly in the hospitality mm-hmm. industry um, and and tech, because obviously tech was really big in Ukraine. So do we know, need, do we need to look at benefits? Um, I'm kind of reluctant to say it, but I, I have heard some concerns um, that uh, it could be difficult to take a job and uh, face into the fact of losing your medical card and some of the other benefits that you would get if you didn't take the job. Yeah, and I, I suppose there is there is a, there is a problem, and I think the the state is conscious that that because obviously people who are Ukrainian can't access HAP. So you know if they if they if they have a full-time job and beyond a certain income level with that job, they do lose all the um, you know, their accommodation and, and things like that. If they I think, work under 30 hours a week and um, under a certain level, which I'm not sure what the calculation is, they uh, can keep uh, state accommodation. But it is a really hard thing because I was speaking to my colleague who, who herself, who's in the situation with her mum, and uh, you know she said, "Well, if I, and we can now rent. I'll go and rent a house." I said, "Do you know how much a two-bedroom apartment in Dublin, somewhere in the regions of Dublin, would be? It could be over two thousand euros. Like I'm afraid, it's not possible." No. And um, you don't do that on ten fifty an hour either. Hmm. You, do, you yeah. don't, and and uh, you don't do it on a much higher salary either. You know, yeah. so it, it is a really hard one, and I think we need to look at generally. Always, we should always be looking at our social welfare so that it doesn't. Stop people from uh, working and, okay. and being able to pay the, the the kind of the rents that we have to pay in this country. Um, I have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning. Much appreciated. Well, keep and positive nice and keep you. the community going. Oh, absolutely, okay, absolutely. Thank you indeed. <laughs> Thanks, uh, a million. Elaine Spollin is uh, the national coordinator of the Ukraine Civil Society Forum. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a lot of people have mentioned uh, the survey from the Irish League of Credit Unions. Head of Communications uh, with the Credit Unions is Paul Bailey, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You're looking at the cost of living and the impact that that is having on parents and affording the back-to-school costs. Uh, interesting to see that 90% of us have seen uh, the cost of groceries and utility bills go up. 67% of parents are cancelling Netflix or other TV subscriptions and memberships to the gym. Uh, gym. And close to a third of us are, are looking to earn more money. Uh, why is this? Tell us about the back-to-school costs. Good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, as you know, we, we do this survey every year. Um, we do it around this time. Some people think it's, it's too soon after school finishes, but... Uh, we deliberately do it this time to actually focus people's minds on, on what the costs are going to be. The, what we found this year is the costs have been the highest since we started doing the survey. We, we started doing the survey back in 2017. 
and this year the, the costs are the highest on, on record. Um, in in the Leinster area, the cost for a primary school child is eleven hundred thirty four, and for a secondary school child, it's averaging fifteen hundred and eleven euros. So you can only imagine if you have two or three school going kids or four, uh, how that ramps up fairly quickly. And obviously a lot of people can't afford it, which is why more than a third of parents are getting into debt. That's right. Um, And the average debt is is €327. We have a a quarter of people are saying they have debts of over €500. So it it is concerning. Um, It's it's how people service that debt, I suppose, is a worry as well. Um, And where, where they borrow from, I suppose, as well. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we would like people to borrow from, you know, recognised lenders such as credit unions or banks. Um, there are registered money lenders, licensed money lenders, but the, the rates are, are exorbitant. Uh, but there are also illegal money lenders. And, and, you know, we find, unfortunately, you know, a cohort of people will go that route uh, rather than, go to maybe a credit union mm. because they're probably worried about a poor credit history or something like that but you know I'd urge anyone with even with a poor credit history to, to, to go and talk to the credit union rather than go and talk to an unlicensed money lender because don't, that's don't just ass- a, a don't, circle Don't assume you won't get a loan go and talk to the credit exactly. union Exactly, go and talk yeah. And, yeah. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and it's very easy to join There are there's also a lot of credit unions that are involved in what we call the personal microcredit scheme so this is for people who may be on social welfare um, who can have the, 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 the cost of the loan deducted from their, uh, the source of their household budget mm. uh, scheme. So it, it, there, there are ways and means uh, for everyone to, to get access to, to affordable finance. Okay, well, 1 in 10, 10% of parents, uh, you say, are considering going to an illegal money lender. If the average debt is €327, Euro, uh, and uh, they borrow that three hundred twenty-seven euro over the course of a, a year. Uh, if they go to an illegal money lender, have you any idea of how much they'll actually end up paying back? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, if, I, if I give you an example, yeah. uh, mm. currently on the central bank website there are regulated money lenders, and they they can be charging interest rates up to between interest rates and what they call collection charges up to one hundred and eighty percent. Uh, yeah, so that gives you an idea, and that's that's a, that's a licensed money lender. The unlicensed one, they're very hidden. We don't know how they work. Uh, well, we have some idea, but I I can only uh, surmise that the rates are going to be higher than what I've mentioned there for the licensed ones. Oh, you compare that yeah. to a, a credit union where you get a loan at you know personal loan at twelve percent. Some some credit unions do it cheaper. So if I give an example, you know one hundred and fifty euro. Sorry, a 500 uh, loan uh, from a credit union over six months, you pay roughly 15 euro in interest. From a licensed money lender, you pay about 150 euro in interest over, over the same period. So you okay. can see the big difference there. Yeah, so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I think uh, the point has been made and it speaks for itself. We have to leave it there because our, our time has run out. And thank you for your time and for joining us on the programme. Paul Thanks. Bailey is Head of Communications with the Irish League of Credit Unions. And that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.